You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. Second City is back open for live shows, in-person classes, and customized corporate workshops and performances. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. You can go online and find out all the information you need at secondcity.com. Today's podcast is with um, a couple of guys who have written a really terrific book. It's Lauren Nordgren, who is a professor of management and organization at the Kellogg School of Management, uh, and David Schoenthal, um, who's an award-winning professor of strategy, innovation, and entrepreneurship at the Kellogg School of Management and has also worked uh, with IDEO. Um, The book is called The Human Element, Overcoming the Resistance that Awaits New Ideas. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting the Yes And. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Lauren and David, welcome to the show. Hi, Kelly. Hey, great to be here. So you start this book talking about a bullet. Um, and I think if people are looking at a couple professors from Northwestern Kellogg School of Business talking about innovation, they wouldn't expect uh, the book to start with a story about a bullet. So, Ken, what have you explained to me why, why that's an important metaphor for, for the book? I guess Lauren hit it. Um, well, we, we think it's a, uh, you know, beyond the, the value and desire to begin with a perhaps break script and un, unexpected arresting example. Um, the metaphor itself, we think, very much captures the central idea uh, of the book. And so uh, a question we ask in the book to open, a question that we have now asked to countless people is what seems like the simple question of what is it that makes a bullet fly? And what you come to see is people's uh intuition their immediate answer is gunpowder and they answer gunpowder because uh when uh, a bullet ignites uh gunpowder expands forcing the bullet out the barrel of a gun Uh, so gunpowder explains the initial velocity but if you really understand the dynamics of a bullet you would understand that because of that tremendous exit velocity there are these tremendous forces acting against a bullet, principally drag, because the faster an object moves, the more drag it encounters. So gunpowder isn't the wrong answer, but it's a woefully incomplete answer. 
And that intuition about what makes a bullet fly is a perfect metaphor for our central idea, which is we, this deep habit of the mind is to assume that the way you get ideas off the ground is to apply fuel to them. Uh, what people don't consider are the frictions operating against uh, change. So in other words, like why is it this simple device, a bullet is able to achieve such extraordinary power and precision is it's because it's aerodynamic. And in some sense, what we're trying to do is help people think about how to create more aerodynamic ideas. Yeah. And, and I, I actually uh, uh, tweeted out a quote from the book, which you write quote, proposing new ideas without designing their integration into the world is innovation half done. Um, and so really what you're talking about, I think is there's an ecosystem that goes into these things, which means you have multiple audiences, multiple sort of uh, uh, inputs. Um, and that is hard. Our human brains tend to want to go to like, well, no, two follows one, three comes after that, or it's A, B, and C. But it's, it's all these things at the same time, which require you to actually understand a bit about the wiring uh, underneath. And I, uh, David, does that strike you as, as the right, right perception? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And I mean, it seems apropos to, to use the word audience on this podcast in particular. Yeah. I think that that as innovators, we tend to think of our idea as being the central thing to focus on. And if people aren't adopting it, it's something wrong with the idea. Like we're not pitching it well enough. We haven't designed it well enough. And we fixate on the thing is the reason to get people to say yes. Um, but what we're arguing here is that, that that's where everybody focuses, but that's only half of the situation. The other half is how to make sure that your audiences are willing to receive it warmly and human beings just by our nature are not inclined to be, or not conditioned to be cool with change. So you're, you're actually working against human nature, which is why the book is called the human element. Um, tell us about, is it Ali Rada? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. 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 That cat seems pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, he knows what he's doing. So, so we, we, we love to tell stories about people that are really putting friction theory, as we refer to the, the principle of the book, who are putting friction theory into practice, sometimes without even knowing that that's what they're mm -hmm. doing. And Ali Rada, as you mentioned, is a car dealer, Les Stanford Chevrolet in Dearborn, Michigan, who is, by every metric, the most successful car salesman in human history. And sells, just to put it in context, uh, the average U.S. car dealer sells maybe about 100 cars a year, give or take, maybe, maybe given the COVID situation a little bit more, but usually around 100, 120 cars a year. Uh, Ali, on his own, does about 12 times this. Hmm. And the, the, the cool thing about him is that what he, the way he thinks about himself in the role of being a car salesman is actually not to sell at all. And when you just unpack how what it is that makes him successful, a lot of it is counterintuitive to our theories of sales. Yeah, and and um, it strikes me that he also uh, Adam Grant's literature seems to also jive with this: is that this guy's a total giver. Like he like if if you're going to get a better deal somewhere else, he'll take you to that place to get the better deal. Yeah, and he he what he wants you to do is make progress. He doesn't care if you're making the progress with him or making the progress with somebody else. What he knows is that if he helps you make progress at some point, at some point, you're likely to come back to him to talk about a car. Or even if he doesn't sell a car to you, that 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 feeling, that emotion that he plants in you will cause you to tell other people to go to Ali Rada. It's just so antithetical to what we think about when we think about car dealers. 
Oh, it's the worst. I, I, I have had nothing but terrible experiences with this. I, I'm you literally go considering going to Michigan to get Yeah, drive to Dearborn and, and Allie will hook you up. I might have to do it. Uh, uh, Lauren, this first section is about fuel. And you talk about two different kinds of fuel, progressive fuel and aversive fuel. Can, can you talk about the distinction between those two? Yeah. Um, so fuel, the, the job of fuel is to uh, incite desire to change. And the conventional version of that is to elevate appeal. So to make it more attractive, to make it more magnetic. Um, and that's what we would call, um, actually, David, do you want, why don't you take this one? This is your deal. <laughs> uh, so um, it's so funny. If, if people are listening, Lauren and I are sort of looking at each other in the camera, just deciding who's going to do what. And we have a system of hand signals. Um, so yes, per, the, Lauren mentioned the the principle of fuel, which is adding thrust behind an idea or adding magnetism to an idea to make it more appealing. But it's not just fuel isn't only when we uh, attribute goodness to something. So traditional fuel is like advertising campaigns, marketing campaigns, pricing, promotion. Any of you who have studied the marketing mix know like the four P's or the seven P's product placement packaging. Those are all what we would call progressive fuel, which is helping make an idea more attractive. Aversive fuel also makes an idea more attractive, but not by promoting its features and benefits, by making you feel bad by not choosing it. So if you've ever been to a hotel booking website or an airline booking website, and you get that little reminder that says, oh, only one ticket left at this price or only two tickets left at this price, what they're trying to do is trigger loss aversion, the fear of not making the right decision or the fear of, of not being urgent enough. That is also fuel, but it's not playing up the benefits. It's making you feel about how much you'll regret it if you don't do it in the future. So similar purpose, but coming at it from different angles. You also talk about inertia. And I I have to like dig in on this philosopher who I'd not heard of. uh, Is it Robert Nochik? Nosik? The pleasure machine guy? (laughs) Talk to us about that study and how it relates to this concept of inertia. Yeah. So the uh, so that's a, it's a famous thought experiment within philosophy, and the basic idea is you pose the following you pose the following question. So imagine, in essence, you are put into a simulator, and this simulator will, in every way, mimic life. You'll have no sense that you are living in a simulated reality. But what will be different about it is it'll be a perfect reality. It will be a perfect utopian reality for you. Um, You will have the best job. Your wildest dreams will be endlessly satisfied. Um, And then the question is posed to people, um, what would you choose? Would you choose real life or would you choose the pleasure machine? And most people will choose real life. And that's often been taken as evidence that people prefer the authentic but imperfect life over the simulated but uh, seemingly perfect experience. Uh, But then someone had an important realization, which is uh, they flipped this thought experiment around. And what they did was they assumed, they said, imagine you've just been woken up and you're informed this is your third time in the pleasure machine. And every 10 years, the company that runs it wakes you up to give you the choice of, do you want to continue? Now those preferences reverse. Now, all of a sudden, 
people want to stay in the pleasure machine. Mm. And what is different about that is that it reflects what is familiar, what is the status quo. And this speaks to such a, a deep aspect of our human nature. People prefer systems, ideas that are familiar, not because they are better, not because they are better systems, but because they are familiar systems. Uh, if you ask people uh, what kind of training should be appropriate, like in academia, what, what is a good model for P the, a PhD program? They invariably endorse the model they experienced. Like we like the things we like, not because they are better, but because they're what we know. I was so angry at my local Jewel food store when they moved things around because <laughs> I'm like, I have a system. And you've just screwed with my system. And, you know, you've got to imagine that some like IDEO guy showed up at Jewel and were like, you know, you're going to sell a lot more hot sauce if you move it to aisle two. And they have a reason for it. Um, I, 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 IDEO would never move the hot sauce, man. You, you know, <laughs> IDEO would never mess with somebody's comment. not touching the hot sauce. Yeah. Uh, excellent. Um, and I think this is interesting, too, when you use this fascinating. I'm a big uh, soccer slash football fan. Um, and you say it also shows why Americans are socialists and Europeans are capitalists when it comes to professional sports, which might surprise someone by that statement, but not when you break it down, right? Yeah, I mean, that's right. So uh, if you look at, let's take, let's take the two versions of football, American and European. Uh, so the NFL is a socialist system. The best teams get the worst picks. There is a a wealth sharing system, the lowest performing teams get the best choices the following year. Like mm -hmm. it is a system designed to create evenness, fairness, wealth distribution. It is a socialist system. And if you look at the European model, you see precisely the opposite. So you have mega clubs, uh, things like Real Madrid, uh, Manchester United that have all the things, all the toys, all the money, all the best players. Um, and if you give that a little bit of thought, it's kind of funny, right? Because the political systems that these continents endorse are precisely the opposite. And, and the point of all of this is now, if you ask Americans, do you like your socialist NFL system? If you like, <laughs> if you like your, ask Europeans, do you like um, your capitalist football system? They all like their systems and they will defend their systems despite the inconsistency in this. <laughs> Again, why? It's not because those systems are better. It's just what they know. And that speaks to this ever-present friction for the innovator, which is our habit for people to defend what they know, what is familiar, what's comfortable. And it's even more Machiavelli than that, right? Like the worst teams in the Premier League in soccer don't get the best pick. They get relegated. They get relegated. The next league, right? So yes. it's much closer to American industry than it is to American sports. Completely. Okay, so let's talk about how you can kind of overcome this uh, inertia. Um, and, and in this section, I was really thinking a lot about the work we do at Second City, a, a common line I use, which, which is a sort of a like a discovery, worked there for over 30 years, but I never thought about it this way. But Second City is like the only commercial entertainment company that I can think of who has been this successful for this long, only doing original work. Like that doesn't really exist anywhere. Like, you know, theaters will play Phantom of the Opera or what, you know, other stuff. And, and like, and you'd never have a, a, an act that j just is living on their most recent album. If you go to a concert, it's like, 
they do no one wants to hear like Neil Young tried that and that rockabilly thing was not good. And now um, for all of our new stuff that you've never heard before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, no. It reminds me of that Simpsons episode when Grand Funk Railroad attempted to play a new song and Homer just said, No new stuff, taking care of business, only taking care of business. I, I believe in the four or five years we've been doing the podcast, this is the first Grand Funk Railroad uh, reference. It might and not be that, the last. It shouldn't be. And that's, I'm taking that as a failing on my part. Um, so, David, <laughs> thank you for, for adding that in. So let's talk about some of these ideas. You do this. And, and one of the things you talk about, and I just had this conversation with a colleague here, you say, quote, a skilled presenter knows how to dial up for seriousness for a formal audience but dial it down for a casual crowd. That is something we completely teach our people that you're playing for the audience that you have, not the audience that you want to have. And they're going to be different at any given moment. And so you get this experience playing at colleges and performing art centers and all these different places that then when you come here in the resident stage in Chicago, you're prepared at any given night to just adjust your performance in a way that is going to maximize the sort of emotion you get back. And in our case, that's, that's laughter. And I think for an innovator, that would be, you know, buy, buying my product. Yeah. It was funny in preparation for this, this conversation, I was thinking a little bit about improv and, and how it mirrors to the principles of the book and in the two places that you just identified Kelly, like humor is a way of adding familiarity to an unfamiliar situation yes. is a really interesting device. Mm-hmm. And then also as a way of removing some emotional friction, like anxiety and trepidation, yeah. humor can be a fabulous antidote to both of those things. And even though a second city performance is an original performance every night, like the construct is relatively familiar, right? Yeah. It's going to be a scripted piece followed by an improvisational sketch piece followed by a scripted piece. It's a little like jazz in this respect. Yeah. People think about jazz as original composition every night, which it is, except a jazz chart has the same head and the same tail and everything that happens in the middle is a little bit improvisational. And what makes an unfamiliar idea like jazz familiar to the audience is everybody recognizes the head and everybody recognizes the tail, which makes the part in the middle feel a little bit more accessible and a little less foreign. Yeah. You're kind of, you're kind of creating the perfect construct for the chaos that is uh, the original, the original work and you're, and you're protecting it. Um, This is also, this section also talks about time which is something that just sort of fascinates me in, in that the role that time plays. In, so if you think about our work, there's timing. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we, we have seen literally like no laugh, uh, take two beats, huge laugh. I mean, it's, and, and, and some of that's instinctive, but actually some of it is actual uh, comedy math, which we know. But timing is actually effective here in terms of like, when are you launching this? How, you know, like, like literally, like, is the time ready to, to do this? And I think, especially since COVID hit, a lot of us are saying, are saying, do we, are we, are we ready? Do we go back? Do we start offering new, new stuff? So talk, talk a little bit about how time plays a role in this. Yeah. I mean, the, the, I think there's a huge opportunity to think about time differently. So, you know, if you think about what uh, innovators often do is they unveil the idea at the precise moment they expect you to decide upon it. But uh, ideas require time, like there's acclimation. And uh, one of the metaphors we use in the book is, you know, ideas are like beer, right? So the, the vast majority of people, the first time you have a sip of alcohol, you don't like it. Terrible. 
Now, but imagine the first moment you take that sip of alcohol, you now have to decide whether alcohol is for you. Like you have to make some binding choice around whether you are want it or don't want it, right? That would be terrible for the beer industry. Mm-hmm. But that's often, practically speaking, more or less what we do. So you have an idea, you unveil it, and now it's time to endorse this idea or, or reject it. So one thing we talk a lot about is creating space for acclimation. And I've done some very simple, uh, David and I have done some very simple experiments along these lines where even something as simple as proposing a new idea at, at the end of a lecture and having people vote on it right away, or proposing this idea at the beginning of the three-hour lecture and then having them consider it, you'll see that some of that resistance is broken down already because time has allowed for rumination. And now, if this is a terrible idea, uh, this acclimation process won't set in. But very often, much of the resistance is simply its unfamiliarity. And as you allow time uh, for acclimation, some of that resistance breaks down. And this actually goes back to that Ali Rada example you talked about at the beginning. One of the things that makes Ali a really effective car dealer is he's happy for the process to take a month. Most car dealers want to keep you on the lot, knowing that the longer you stay on the lot, the more likely you are to make a decision. But that applies duress and exactly the type of thing that Lauren's talking about, which is having to commit to something unfamiliar right there. And then Ali realizes that if he lets you hang out with this idea for a couple of weeks, eventually you will warm up to it. And that makes him a more effective car salesman than the high pressure versions. Uh, you also talk in this section about analogies, and I, I never dawned on me what Apple was doing when they named their various items. Can you talk about that? Because I think that's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, if you go back to the 1980s, when Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak were attempting to try to put a PC in every American's home, or I shouldn't say a PC, put a computer in every American's home, the prevailing uh, computer, personal computers at the time were IBMs and Commodores. And in order to use those computers, you kind of had to speak fluently the language of computer. You had to like know how to activate a DOS-based system. And you really had to be comfortable and conversant in that language in order to have the confidence to actually use one of those machines. And Jobs and Wozniak knew that if they were going to get a computer in every American's home, not every American would take the time to learn the language of computer. The language of computers had to adapt to the way that Americans lived their life. And so even today in Apple interfaces, you'll notice the same things where it's not a coincidence that the home screen of an Apple computer is called a desktop and you create documents and you put those documents in folders. And when you're done with them, you literally crinkle them up and throw them in the trash. And the reason that Apple interfaces are effective and frankly, the reason that Apple takes non-consumers and turns them into consumers is because their products work the way the, the way the rest of our world works. And the way the reason they work the way the rest of our world works is a really fine um, connection between naming things what they're what they are in the analog world and having them behave like you expect. For me, if I can put a kind of summary on some of the, the, the these last talking points, you know why. Analogous comparison, what we're talking about here, why audience tuning, why these techniques can be so helpful is because you know, it's, the, it's the change that is most critical, most important. You know, if we think of the critical social environmental changes, the, the, the important changes that need to happen with industry, these are transformative changes by their nature that, that 
because their radical departure from what we've known means that there will be a lot of inherent resistance uh, pushing back against these ideas. And what we're seeing in, in things like tuning and uh, analogous comparison, these are all creative ways to help create some sense of familiarity within a transformative idea. Which is why like entrepreneurs start their pitches with, you know, we're like Google, we're like Uber, but for fresh fruit, or we're like Google, but for medical information, because now, even though the idea is radical, you're comparing it to something that's familiar and known. Yeah, we were talking earlier before that we started taping about uh, Sunil Gupta, and we're developing a class at Northwestern with him. And one of the things I love about his book, Backable, and some of his thoughts, and it's not necessarily coming out of academia, but I think it's pretty rich, and, and there's probably literature to back it up. But um, he talks a lot about the need for, if you want to back this idea, back the person. And so this idea of like, who, who is this person, where he's come from, and he talks a lot about the story of his parents, his immigrant parents, and then you sort of have this idea of, this lineage and this, you know, coming forward and you're, you're, you're starting to resonate emotionally and connect with and understand like, well, I have parents and they, they also, you know, were, came from, or, you know, immigrants and, and that sort of thing. So um, yeah, there there's, and this is one of the things I love about this book actually is it gives you very practical language and ideas to test out um, because that's another big, big thing that I think we share in terms of what, what you're offering and what second city is about, which is like, it takes practice. And you've got to find safe places to practice and, and rapid prototype your ideas because it's not going to just work in, in this vacuum. Like it needs to be in the hands of the world, but not, again, not too big of the world until you're ready to show it to everyone. Absolutely right. Yeah, I, I think that I'm glad that that's what you took away. We have tried to make this as easy to implement as, as possible with, with language and frameworks that help people do that. And you're right. A lot of this is experimentation and iteration. But one of the things that Lauren and I would identify as being really important is friction is harder to address after it's already manifested itself. It's much easier to address proactively. So like work that we do at IDEA or work we do in innovation, oftentimes we wait until we experience the symptoms of friction to try to address them. But by that point, they become very expensive problems to solve. So what we're trying to encourage people to do is think about forecasting the frictions that may await your ideas. And if you can get ahead of them, addressing them becomes much, much easier. Um, tell us, uh, I, I, the, I had no idea of the history of the word goodbye. Um, and so I really found that interesting. And I both want you to sort of tell that history, but also why you include it in the, in the section on effort. Oh, well, because it is a beautiful example of what what is probably the most profound force operating on our behavior, which is effort. So humans are hypersensitive to effort. And the way you see that in the, uh, you see that in a lot of word origins, actually. So the, um, so as best we can tell, the, the word goodbye first appears in written form in England in about the 1500s. And it's a phrase and it has the same meaning that it has today, but it was the phrase, uh, God be with ye. Fast forward 100 years, it's now begins to abbreviate in written form. Uh, by the 1600s, it's now this four syllable phrase is now the three syllable God be ye. By the 1900s, it's, it's contemporary form of good hyphen by. Then by the 60s, the hyphen drops. And today, of course, it's by, 
right? Or, like just, we, an emo- or just an emoji wave- waving at you. Exactly. <laughs> like we have cut all the fat off that expression. Why do we do that? Because we are in an ever present quest to find the easiest path. We call that the effort principle or the path of least resistance. Does that have anything to also potentially do with system one, system two thinking? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's moving it into the other system almost. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's why an intuitive system is going to be the dominant system because we are cognitive misers. We're generally trying to find the easiest path, the fewest resources, whether that's, um, you know, physical allocation or mental allocation. Did you read Kahneman's latest book, Noise? Because it feels a little bit like you're talking about more noise than bias in some respects with, with this stuff. So uh, here's why I think this matters for uh, innovation and, yeah. and change is because so uh, this concept of effort is, in fact, I think, profoundly important in this context. So um, by way of example, we do this really cool experiment, um, informal experiment where we approach people and say, could we have five minutes of your time? Uh, And if you say yes, we will give money to a local dog shelter. Other people, five minutes of your time. If you say yes, we will give money to the Chicago Herpetological Society. As I'm, and I'm sure your audience well knows, herpetology is the study of reptiles and amphibians. Now, what do people care more about, dogs or frogs? Dogs, unequivocally, obviously dogs. And so if you look at the rate of yes, um, far more people say yes when it's a dog initiative than when it's a frog initiative. And in that, you see the value of fuel, right? This is a more important thing, so more people will say yes to it. But in another case, we change the terms, we do the same thing, but now it's a 20-minute ask instead of a five-minute ask. And the rate of yes goes down, of course, but now you no longer see any difference between those two groups. Now, that's not because people no longer, you know, they still care more about dogs and frogs. What's going on, this is something we would call a crowding out effect. And what that means is the only consideration is the cost of action. And the point of this is we spend all our time trying to elevate the idea. We're trying to convince people, no, 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 this isn't, this isn't a frog level initiative. This is a dog level initiative. And the point of this is sure that might work when it's easy, but if, if the cost is great, if it's inconvenient, if it requires breaking old habits, all that effort may not move the needle because what people often care more about than value of the idea is the cost of action. Hmm. And so uh, much of what looks like resistance to the idea is really people are thinking about the, the headache, the inconvenience of, of implementing that idea. But, but don't let this example undersell the importance of frogs to our ecosystem. We, we frogs frogs need a platform. They do. They absolutely do. And Grand Funk Railroad. Um, Especially. So I'm going to ask you in a moment each for a yes answer, but before we do that, uh, this this book has a lot to say uh, really about the times we live in, and in particular, the response to COVID. Um, uh, and I think you do it in a really elegant way, but in talking about how Americans waged a war against the seatbelts in the 1980s, which I don't know that everyone will remember that that happened. So talk to us about that. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the example that you're, you're talking about was, well, first of all, I, I hope we can all agree that seatbelts are an unambiguously good idea, that when you wear them, the, the risk of fatalities goes significantly down. I mean, by an order of magnitude down over if you don't wear them. And while they can be a little uncomfortable at times, the cost of wearing a seatbelt far outweighs, or the benefit far outweighs the cost. And back in the 80s, when seatbelts were first introduced into the market is something that the government would like to mandate. They were going to pass laws. People rebelled against these laws, not necessarily because they didn't see the value in wearing seatbelts, but just because they didn't want that law or that choice to be imposed upon them. Human beings value autonomy in a way that I think a lot of people underestimate. And and I know this isn't the question. Lauren and I were actually talking about this the other day about the the current situation with remote work. Back pre-COVID, Everybody thought remote work was going to be inferior to in-person work. Yeah. Certainly we did at IDEO. Now, after living with the remote work for a year and a half, what was seemed like an unbreakable habit being in person, now being remote is, has quickly become the unbreakable habit because all of a sudden people have autonomy in their days mm-hmm. that they never had before. And a lot of employers are saying, well, we want to bring people back to the office. Let's offer you know, assistance with their commute. Let's offer clean working spaces. Let's offer all of these bells and whistles to get them to come back to the office. But these are fuel addition ideas when in fact, what people are feeling is that, wait a minute, when you bring me back to the the office, all that autonomy I gained, all that control over my time, I no longer have that. And so, so many employers are trying to make the idea of coming back to work more desirable, failing to recognize that what they're actually dealing with is an issue of autonomy which is also the case that happened with seatbelts. And in some cases, and in some respects, that's similar to what we're seeing right now with COVID vaccines and and mask mandates. Again, depending on where you fall in the political spectrum, you may take exception to what I'm about to say, but the data is undeniably um, impactful when it comes to the benefits of getting a COVID vaccine. The risk of hospitalization goes way down. The risk of symptomatic illness goes way down, except despite all of these data, despite all of this overwhelming information that suggests this, there's still a whole population here in the United States and abroad that is resistant to getting a vaccine. The question is, is that about the data or is that about about feeling like their autonomy is being removed when this is being forced upon them? And so many of our strategies to try to get people to say yes to a COVID vaccine is to just serve them more data. Here's another story about somebody that wishes they had a COVID vaccine. Here's another bolus of data of a longitudinal study we now have that we've published, but they fail to recognize that it's not about the data. In fact, we say in the book, sometimes the strongest data can be the worst evidence because that's not the conversation people want to have. This is about making feel like they're an architect in their own choice. And so rather than imposing ideas upon them with greater force, how might we include them in a dialogue so that they can persuade themselves? And I think this is, this is observe, observed behavior on my part, but I'm curious with you, which is I tend to find that the people who are fine with masks are around other people who are fine with masks, which supports your ideas around proximity being part of this, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it really is hard for people to get to accept this idea. But when you are dealing with someone who is in uh, on the other side of the debate, mm-hmm. who is the opposing position, giving them compelling evidence makes things worse. And I know that's a very hard thing to accept because the evidence is so clearly true to you, Mm -hmm. but it truly makes things worse. It pushes them farther away. And there's very good behavioral evidence of this point. And so when, if your goal 
is to get people to see things the way you see things. Now, this isn't true if someone comes in neutral or open-minded, but when you're dealing with someone who you would perceive as a, as a resistor, someone who's in the other tribe, giving them argumentation, giving them evidence, all those things that we intuitively do truly make it worse because it, it hardens their worldview. So I've talked about this in the podcast before, but it's relevant to what, what we're talking about right now. So when we were running the second science project up at the University of Chicago, which was blending behavioral science and improvisation, the scholars there were basically like, we understand this idea around yes and, but when you have a, a, a fundamental difference with someone, you know, what's your technique? And the one that we co-created was thank you because. And the mm. idea there is you're thanking this person for their information and you're finding some point of agreement, no matter how small. Mm. And that allows you to stay inside a difficult conversation where a paper is coming out next year because we, we tested it with both people and it was off the charts. It even works, and we're assembling more data on this, but it, it, it appears to work very well, even if just one person is doing it, which then that surprised me. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful example. Yeah. Uh, okay. So we just touched on yes and. Um, who wants to go first with their yes and story? Uh, I kick things off, David. Okay. Yeah. So so this this is the, the Lauren doesn't know that I'm going to say. I actually think this book is a great example of yes and. Lauren and I and Lauren, you can't see this in the in the in your ears, but Lauren just gave me one of those ah shucks uh, <laughs> waves. Um, but it's true. I mean, one of the unique things about this collaboration is Lauren comes from a research background and is a psychologist. I come from an applied background as a designer. And we see the world differently. And had we kind of no-butted each other along the way, I don't think this work would be nearly as rich. I don't think the stories would be nearly as profound. And I don't think we'd find those integrations between the research and the applied. And so I think it took both of us, and I'll speak for myself, it took a lot of yes ending for me to say, oh, that's a really interesting principle. And here's a story that brings it to life. And then Lauren saying, and here's another way that we can spin it. I hope that when you read this book, you'll see examples of us building on the ideas of each other uh, as we go. I think it's a thousand percent true. And it's, it's that, that you, when you start hanging around with academics, you start to sour on Malcolm Gladwell because you realize that the storytelling is not serving the evidence. Um, it, it's the, you know, the opposite. Sometimes the story takes you someplace that's not even close to what the evidence is. So you get like the 10,000 hour thing and everyone misunderstands what the actual research was. So you guys really st- strike a nice balance between, nope, this is the evidence. And then here's some stories that, that uh, feel like they apply. Um, Lauren, what's your yes and? Um. Yeah, I didn't hear a, a single thing David said because I was trying to think about this. Um, uh, so I've got two ideas in mind. Okay, I'll, I'll go with one. Do uh, you want quirky or book related? Quirky. Okay, so um, uh, I've always wanted to, I've always felt uh, perhaps an insecurity that I've read so little of Shakespeare. And I've always felt like I should be fluent in, in Shakespeare. And so I made a decision that I would never ordinarily make, which was I signed up for a, a, a Shakespeare class. And we got, I forget what book it was, but I bought the book and I showed up. And what I thought we were going to do is just read the book um, and, and, and learn from this expert and and professor of Shakespearean literature. What I was not at all prepared for is that we were going to be assigned roles and do dramatic readings. And further, I was not prepared for the fact that everyone had 
read this multiple times and they had been all of these characters multiple times. And I will tell you, it was one of the most uncomfortable experiences of my life. Uh, it was a horrible choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm from a, we barely hug kind of family. Like I am <laughs> not free. I don't have this carefree nature that everyone else there had. These were all, these were all actors. And then this is, you know, I've got the emotional, um, I'm like an oak tree, you know, I'm pretty hollow inside. So this was a terrible choice, but uh, in the moment it was a terrible choice. But uh, after a month or two, I came to really appreciate it because I think one of the, one of the lessons learned for me is that there's so much value in, in checking these curiosities off the list and coming to see the things that you that just really aren't right for you is a very valuable thing because always in the back of my head, I've thought this is some unexplored aspect of my life. I now no longer have any of those uh, sort of curiosities or misgivings. And and now the next step for Lauren is to go to Burning Man. (laughs) It's a baby step to Burning Man. Shakespeare is a baby step to Burning Man. Yeah. Burning. We covered off on Burning Man uh, a couple podcasts ago from when we were taping uh, a a woman I know who's been there like 19 times and actually worked for them. And I'm like, yeah, she couldn't believe that I'd never been. And then I'd said, I also never had an, an edible which I actually have now. Uh, I was in Denver. I went to Red Rocks for the first time, handed an edible. Very, very pleasing experience. I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm going to be going there, but, you know. You know, it's, it's a slippery slope, Kelly. It, it is a slippery from edi- slope. From, edi- from edible to playa. Yeah, well, all right. This, this whole podcast could be a cautionary tale. I'm not <laughs> sure. Uh, but I'd love both your yes and stories. The book is called The Human Element, Overcoming the Resistance That Awaits New Ideas. Lauren and David, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you. This is great. Getting to Yes And is produced by The Second City, Second City Works, and WGN Radio. It's also produced by Elif Garris with help by Mike Farinacchio and Colleen Fahey. The music that you hear that intros and outros the program is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you want to get more information on The Second City, you can reach us at www.secondcityworks.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
recevras.